The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Some kind of love I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I am also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks. And my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is also in partnership with Roger Wiegan, who publishes Trader Tracks, and Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? We have a special one-time-only introductory offer to all three of these newsletters, and you can call Claudio Bossi in my office at 718-457-1426. That's Claudio Bossi, 718-457-1426. Or go to my website at miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com, to learn more about these two uh, these three publications. Now, Chen in particular has had a phenomenal track record. I think he deserves special recognition because of it. He's taken $5,400 of his wife's IRA, or Roth IRA, with no new money going in, no new money coming out. So it's very easy to track the performance of that fund. He started with $5,400 in January of 2003, and by the end of last month, it was worth almost about, well, it actually was worth $1.2 million at this point in time. Chen shares some of his excellent investment ideas with the listeners of this show from time to time. Unfortunately, Chen will not be with us this week because this show was pre-recorded so that yours truly could attend and speak at an investment conference in Switzerland. Uh, I do expect, however, to be back on the show live on November 23rd, at which time I do expect Chen Lin to be with me, as well as my other partner, Roger Wiegand. Also, we're going to have Roger Conrad will be our special guest. If you're looking for ways to get some sort of return on your savings, it's hard to do these days, but Roger Conrad has some excellent ideas about how to get that 5 to 10% return or yield on your savings, and do it in a fairly safe way. I, I feel confident in saying that anyway. Roger will be with us on the 23rd of November for the second time on this show to help us uh, find some ways to uh, to get some cash and some cash flow and some income from our savings that 
we've worked so hard all our lives to to put forward, and now the government, of course, is giving us next to nothing on Treasury bills. So where can we find some good yields? Uh, Roger Conrad will be with us to tell us that. Then uh, the last Tuesday of this month, I'm going to have back with me again Adrian Day, money manager Adrian Day, who I've known well. He's uh, I've been on many panel discussions with Adrian Day. Uh, he's going to be back to talk again about commodities and investing in the markets. He'll no doubt have a lot to say about precious metals, but we're going to ask Adrian this time about some specific markets, uh, some very interesting markets that you might consider and find out what are the risks and returns in investing in some of these uh, some of these special markets. Well, that's enough about the future. What about today? Well, today, uh, in this pre-recorded session, I have with me Dr. Larry Parks, who knows about as much as anyone alive about how gold ties into the United States Constitution. Larry understands as well as anyone I know about how fiat money is being used by the bankers to rob the hard-working middle-class people, the miners, the manufacturers, the farmers, the inventors, people who really do something of value for you and me, They are not getting their fair shake. We have a systemic theft going on through paper money creation that siphons off wealth from those that create it, and it puts it in the hands of uh, Wall Street and the bankers, and to an extent also allows the politicians to uh, expand their fiefdoms. Uh, The Washington and the GDP share that goes to government keeps growing and growing and growing in no small measure because of the fiat money system. And... The uh, the sort of arrangement that the politicians and the bankers have, Larry Parks will tell you that he believes the uh, the bankers have really co-opted or actually have bought out the politicians. Well, then, during the second hour of this show, uh, this week, I am very honored to have with me Eric Sprott of Sprott Asset Management. Eric, who is the preeminent investor from Toronto, is one of the leading investors in gold and silver markets uh, for some time now. And in the commodity markets in general, Eric Sprott will no doubt have many things to say that are in common with Larry Parks, but Eric Sprott will bring you some good ideas about how to uh, to invest in gold and other assets, other commodities that can help you preserve your wealth at a time when holding paper money is going to be a surefire way of losing uh, virtually all, if not all, of your wealth. So uh, both of my main guests today have so much value to add to this show that I'm going to go right away to the commercial break so that we can get right back with Larry Parks in just a couple of minutes and later in the show uh, with uh, Eric Sprott. So Larry Parks will be next right after the commercial break. Don't go away. I'll be right back with Dr. Parks. You'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Crocodile Gold Corp. is a new gold producer with Bite. Our operating gold mines are in the Northern Territory of Australia. Crocodile Gold plans to produce 100,000 ounces of gold in 2010, increasing to 200,000 ounces of gold in 2011. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometers. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let the snappy opportunity pass by. 
Parkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Gold Fields in British Columbia. Parkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer long by 20-kilometer wide geological belt and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Parkerville's own proposed open pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Parkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Parkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. North Atlantic Resources is a gold exploration company with three projects in Mali, West Africa. With successful drilling programs and new discoveries made this year, we are in an excellent position to advance our premier FT project to development. We have a 43-101 compliant resource of approximately 600,000 ounces of gold, with a target to increase to over 1 million ounces. North Atlantic trades under the symbol NAC on the TSX Venture Exchange. Learn more about NAC. Go to our website at www.nac.com. TSX.com. American Bonanza Gold's project, located in Arizona, is scheduled for production in 2010. American Bonanza Gold announced the positive results of its recent feasibility study at its 100% owned Copperstone Gold Mine. The mine is estimated to produce an average of 45,000 ounces of gold annually. At the current spot gold price, this will result in an IRR of 120%. Join the gold bull market. Invest in American Bonanza Gold. Visit the website at AmericanBonanza.com for more exciting information. Don't miss this great opportunity. The high-risk but high-reward business of mineral exploration is key to discovery and development of America's next generation of mines. A leader in this search is Millrock Resources. Based in Anchorage, Millrock is revealing the astounding potential for gold deposits in the Alaska frontier. In Arizona, the target is giant, hidden porphyry copper deposits. Financing this search are joint venture partners Tech, Ballet, Inmet, Kinross, and Altius, major industry players. Together, the aim is discovering world-class gold and copper deposits to help secure America's productive future. Investors can share in the potential rewards. Mill Rock trades on the TSX Venture Exchange, symbol MRO. Revolution Resources Corp. is a publicly trading exploration company that trades under the symbol RV on the TSX Exchange. Led by an experienced management team with a track record for discoveries, Revolution has initiated drilling on the company's newly acquired Champion Hills Gold Project in North Carolina. Revolution is focused on making a world-class discovery in an established gold belt, and with over $5 million in the Treasury, Revolution is effectively positioned to do so. Please visit www.revolutionresourcescorp.com for further information. As regular listeners to this show know, I am very bullish on gold and especially gold mining stocks. One of my favorite gold mining companies is Metanor Resources, traded Toronto and the Pink Sheets. This is a new gold producer. It is using cash flows from its Barry Mine in Quebec to finance growth of that mine and to put the world-famous Quebec Bachelor Lake Mine back into production. This stock has been recommended by my newsletter because I do believe it holds extraordinary upside price potential with relatively low levels of risk. Visit Metanor's website at metanor.ca or subscribe to my newsletter for more information. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Try not to try too hard. It's just a love You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, 
Taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm very pleased to have with me a longtime friend, Dr. Larry Parks. Lawrence Parks is the Executive Director of the Foundation for the Advancement of Monetary Education, that is FAME for short. He has broad experience in academia, in business, and in finance, and holds a Ph.D. in operations research from the Polytechnic University. Dr. Parks has studied the monetary issue for more than 30 years. His writings have appeared in Pensions and Investments, The Economist, The Washington Times, The Freeman, The Free Market, American Outlook, The United States Congressional Record, National Review, and others. He is an active member of many civic and social organizations, a member of the United Association for Labor Education, the National Writers Union, the UAW 1981, the AFL-CIO, and he is a frequent speaker on the fight for honest monetary weights and measures. His focus is on how our present fiat monetary system operates to destroy savings, pensions, and jobs, and what to do about it. Larry, in addition to your weekly tele, uh, Larry, in addition, uh, Larry also has a weekly television show and. Um, I, I know uh, that it is a very interesting show. In fact, yours truly was a guest on that show some time ago. So welcome, Larry, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Well, thank you very much for having me, Jay. It's a real privilege and honor to be with you. Well, it is a privilege and honor to have you as well, Larry. Uh, we have known each other for the better part of 15 years or so since you uh, started your mission. I understand uh, that you have been a money manager yourself in the past. And really, what, what caused you to... Um, to look into this, uh, to really study seriously, not only study, but be an advocate for honest weights and measures, for, for honest money, if you will. Well, uh, basically, I was a balance sheet guy, and I had developed a whole bunch of paradigms for valuing balance sheets. And then about the middle of the 1990s, they started giving me spurious results. And in terms of valuation, I started to look at where all the money was coming from. And I had known about it. I had a professor many years ago, Murray Rothbard, as, uh, as a disciple of, of Anmesis. And when I saw it was happening, I tried to get, it, it's just dishonest, really. And I tried to get other think tanks interested in this issue. I brought it to Cato, uh, to Heritage, the Manhattan Institute. I mean, I brought it all over, and nobody wanted to touch it. And finally, someone said to me, why don't you do it? And that's how I got into this. So I'm really I'm looking to educate people about the perils of irredeemable paper ticket money and the benefits of gold and silver as money. And I have well, Larry, an organization. I'm sorry, Jay, go on. Yeah, no, Larry, you certainly have been doing a great job of educating people, including yours truly. You and I have had uh, many discussions. We've had lunches together uh, in Manhattan. Uh, you have opened my eyes to a great extent, and I think it's remarkable that you actually studied under Murray Rothbard. Well, he was one of the very few people you know, who knew about this, but even Murray... Uh, did not do as much research on this as he could have. The guy who really did the best work was is Ed Vieira, and mm. he is the author of the magnificent Pieces of Eight, The Monetary Powers and Disabilities of the Constitution. So Ed, Ed really straightened a lot of stuff for me out. 
Well, Ed, Ed is certainly uh, certainly brilliant. There's no doubt about it. Uh, a scholar, an intellect of uh, a, a small man, a Portuguese man, but uh, a brilliant intellect, no doubt about it. And one of the one of the premier thinkers, I think, in the, in the monetary field. Well, Larry, uh, you also, as I started to mention, have a weekly television show, and you've been giving a live presentation entitled, and this is a long title. It's called "Collapse of the Dollar: Monetary Malfeasance, the Remonetization of Gold." Reasserting the Monetary Powers and Disabilities of the U.S. Constitution. And you've been giving this talk in the New York area for the past few years. Um, I understand that several thousand people have actually have seen this, this discussion on your television show. Uh, that's a very long title, Larry. But several thousand people have seen it in person, Jay. Oh, okay. And, and a good number of those people went out and bought gold mm-hmm. at prices anywhere from $400 and up. Yeah. As you might imagine, there's a lot of happy campers out there. Well, indeed, uh, certainly not that uh, I think you would agree with this statement. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it's not that gold is going up in value so much as the paper money is reducing in value. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. In fact, the, the really most important thing for people to take away is that as you create more of something, it becomes less valuable, and there is no end to the amount of irredeemable paper ticket money that the authorities create. Well, indeed. I mean, it's sort of true of everything, isn't it? The more supply, everything else being equal, the less valuable it becomes. But what would paper have in value anyway? I mean, our money has nothing behind it. So even when the dollar was quote-unquote strong, what value did the dollar really have? Well, it was held up by hot air, by misrepresentation, by non-disclosure of material information, and coercion, the coercion being the legal tender laws. So basically, the whole thing was fraudulent right from the get-go. However, people don't really recognize fraud of that genre, and the reason is you want to believe the institutions are fair, Mm -hmm. like the notion you don't want to believe that your parents have lied to you or that Mm -hmm. the authorities have lied to you all these years when, in fact, they have. Right. So we, we, we believe what we want to believe, I guess, is what you're saying to an, to an extent. Well, you want to have faith, Jay. You don't want to have the notion that important things have been misrepresented to you your whole life. Sure. I mean, it's difficult to live your life that way if you realize that the people that you have placed your trust in are, are really you know, 180 degrees diametrically opposed to the truth, and they're basically giving you lies. And, and then you have to – it really means that you have to change your life or the way you view the world, doesn't it? And that's a lot of work. And so one of the problems we have here is the cognitive dissonance uh, for the issue, the difference between what is and what people think they know. And it is so great, people can take a look at it. I mean, it just repel. In fact, uh, John Kenneth Galbraith has this line about money creation. He says the way the banks create money is so simple, the mind is repelled. Repelled. (laughs) That's an incredible thing for him to say. He wrote that in his book, Money, uh, 1975. Uh, for those people who aren't familiar with John Kenneth Galbraith, he was one of the preeminent economists of the 20th century, president of the American Economic Association. Uh, Kennedy was in love with this guy. He had made him the ambassador to India. Uh, after Kennedy was murdered, a lot of people wanted to run Galbraith for president. He was so well regarded. However, fortunately for us, and I think for him as well, he was born in Canada. So he wasn't eligible. But to say that, you know, the mind is repelled, on my line is there are certain concepts that we all hold very strongly. And the concept that all of us, cross-culture, cross-time, hold most strongly is what uh, psychologists call gender identification. 
So from the time, the earliest time you can remember, people are telling you you're a little boy or a little girl, as the case may be. Nobody comes to you 40, 50, 60, 70 years later, you know, Jay, you're not a boy, you're a girl. Mm-hmm. I mean, that just goes right by you. So with the irredeemable paper ticket money, everybody's grown up with that. The notion that there's something fundamentally wrong, dishonest even with it, how could that be? And you have to reorient so much of your thinking. Uh, people just, you know, they just shy away from it is what happens. Right. Of course, there was a time when the dollar did have some backing of gold as recently, internationally, as recently as 1971. And I can tell you, Larry, a few years back when my son was a student in high school, he came home and told me that his history teacher thought that the dollar was still backed by gold. So it seems to me that maybe what's happened is there's been a change behind the scenes that most Americans haven't been aware of, and they sort of think that there's something really valuable behind the dollar when, in fact, there is not. Well, this has to do with the misrepresentation. Mm-hmm. And, in fact, the whole question of what is a dollar is very important, and there's very few people in this country and around the world can even answer that question. And the guy who I'm really indebted to for this, again, is uh, Dr. Edwin Vieira. Mm-hmm. And he really did a lot of research, you know, way back when. And I did a lot of research as well. And it turns out that the dollar is mentioned twice in the Constitution, but it is not defined in the Constitution. It's mentioned in connection with the slave tax, which is no more. But much more importantly and relevant today, it's mentioned in the Seventh Amendment. The Seventh Amendment is uh, the one that tells you that you're entitled to a trial by jury for any dispute, $20 or more. Hmm. What are they talking about when they say a dollar? They're not talking about irredeemable paper tickets. They're not talking about a Federal Reserve note. What are they talking about in the Constitution, which is the overriding law of our land, when they, say, uh, when they use the word dollar in the Constitution? Hmm. And the answer is they're talking about the Spanish mill dollar. And the evidence for that, and I have pictures of it, are the Continentals that the, that the Continental Congress issued to finance the revolution. And you see a $30 bill, and it says this entitles the bearer to 30 Spanish mill dollars. Hmm. And when Thomas Jefferson wrote the Coinage Act of 1792, here you see the definition, and the definition is the same value as a Spanish mill dollar. What's the value of a Spanish mill dollar? It's the specie content, the amount of silver in it. And so he defines the, the dollar as 371.25 grains of silver. That is a dollar. It's not a piece of paper that's backed, redeemable, pegged to, linked to silver or gold. It's a weight of silver. Oh, so any other, any other representation is a misrepresentation. Well, of course, uh, there was, though, uh, the backing of the dollar. That is, in theory, you could take your dollar and get... Uh, gold or silver for it at one time. So, I mean, it would be difficult, would it not, Larry, for people to carry large amounts of metal around in their pockets. So uh, that was a convenient way to go, though, wasn't it, to have paper to well, carry actually, around? There's a, there's a very good story to that. It'd be very, uh, it would be very inconvenient for people to carry around gold or silver. And so what happened was the banks, people would leave their gold and silver at the bank and they would get in exchange a promissory note from the bank, sometimes called a bank note. Mm-hmm. All right? And all that bank note was, it would say something to the effect, so much silver or so much gold has been deposited, payable to the bearer on demand. And so I have pictures of, of uh, silver certificates, and they say plainly, payable to the bearer on demand, $1. And so the piece of paper itself is not a dollar. It's a promise to pay a dollar. Mm-hmm. And then they break the promise to pay a dollar, 
and the broken promise to pay a dollar now becomes a dollar. Mm. I mean, how stupid can stupid be? Yeah. It's... You follow what happened here? So the dishonored promissory notes, a, a broken contract, now they say is what was promised. And mm. in order to get people to use it, they make it legal tender. Mm. So the metaphor that I have is, and I, again, I have pictures of all this stuff. You go into a restaurant, you check your coat, you get a coat check. They steal your coat. And then when you go back to get your coat, they tell you the coat check is a coat. <laughs> and, that's, and that's what you have now. And then they say, well, the coat check was backed by a coat. Yeah. You know, so it's a coat. It's not a coat. It's a piece of paper with ink on it. And the, yeah. and, and the stuff that circulates now, they're not dollars. They're just pieces of paper with ink on it or they're electronic blips. Does okay, that make sense to you? Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, it doesn't really make sense. I mean, it's just what we have, and we're asked to believe it, right? And, and Now, for the rest of this conversation, knowing what we just said, we'll just use dollars in the, in, in the conventional sense, knowing that we're talking about a fraudulent entity. I, I think you've defined that very well, Larry, a fraudulent entity. You know, it re- reminds me, what is a dollar? Ian McAvity said, uh, he, he started out a newsletter, so maybe a year ago, he says, uh, a barrel of oil is a barrel of oil. An ounce of gold is an ounce of gold. What is the dollar? And the answer is, of course, the dollar is is really worthless. Um, the dollar, the dollar is the constitution. The, you know, the dollar in the constitution. Coinage Act is, is a lump of silver. Mm-hmm. What we call a dollar today is not a dollar. I mean, I have a slide. It's a very good slide. You have to see it to to, to get the flavor of this. So I have a, a, I have a sign that says "cat," and we hang the sign that says "cat" on a dog. And the question is, does the dog become a cat? <laughs> All right? So you have a piece of paper, and you write the word dollar on it, gussy it up with seals and signatures. Does that make it a dollar? And the answer is no. And if the Congress passes a law that says, well, now all these pieces of paper that have the word dollar on them are dollars, does that make it a dollar? And the answer is no. Things are what they are. And yeah. so one of the ways they, they uh, got people to use all this irredeemable paper ticket money is they misrepresented. Yeah. Well, and then uh, they made it legal tender, which is really uh, an abomination. Uh, fraudulent. And, and why, Larry, um, the people have been asleep. They're not aware of it. Why, how do you think this has happened? Well, again, people want to believe in their institutions. You want to have faith in the authorities. You want to have faith, you know, like, like in, the, in your home. You don't want to think that your parents are lying to you. You don't want to feel that the government is lying to you about something that's so important. Yeah. And money is, you know, after sex, that's the most important thing. Some say it is the most important thing. <laughs> well, we'll let the uh, the individual listeners decide which is more important, sex or money. But uh, obviously, but they're, the, both for, they're both the, very the important. The notion that they would lie to you about something like this, I mean, it's horrendous. Yeah. Um, of course, lying is nothing new in human history, but uh, we, I, I, I get the point. We, we have to believe, I mean, otherwise... Uh, our lives would have to be, we'd have to change our lives. Now, you did change your life in, in, a, in a very major way because you, you have been so earnestly going after this issue. Larry, you, I have always admired you for, for your ambition to try to, do, to do, do what's right, to help people understand that we have this sort of, this, this monetary system that is dishonest. It reallocates wealth from those that create it to those that control the system, I would say. Right. Really, and the people who control the system are primarily the financial sector. Mm-hmm. And Dick Durbin, sitting senator from Illinois, he came out with this quip recently. He says the banks own the Congress. Mm-hmm. How do the banks own the Congress? 
And the answer is they've bribed all these guys, with very minor exception, with what they euphemistically call campaign contributions. And in effect, they've bought them off. Right. And what they've done, the Congress has delegated to the banks. They didn't do it last week. This has been going on for a long time. The Congress has delegated to the banks a power that the Congress does not have under our Constitution, and that is the power to create money out of nothing. Mm-hmm. Imagine if you had the power to create money out of nothing, Jay, how rich you'd get. And these guys have gotten so rich. It's not just the banks. It's the whole Wall Street crowd. Mm-hmm. It's unbelievable. I mean, you can't even imagine. Uh, I mean, the, the numbers are like uh, from astronomy. You know, it's, it's like out of space. Uh, there's a chart that I put up. It goes back to an analysis I did in 1980. In 1980, the money supply in this country was about $2 trillion. Again, all created out of nothing. The market capitalization of the S&P 500 was about a trillion and the market capitalization of the financial sector, primarily Wall Street and the banks in those days, was 5%, 50 billion. Of, you know, 5% of, of a trillion, $50 billion. Mm-hmm. So you skip ahead to uh, 1997, it was 2007, and now the money supply has grown from 2 trillion up to 13 trillion. The additional 11 trillion, again, all created flat out of nothing by the banks without work. And now the market capitalization of all the uh, equities in America is $19 trillion. But now the financial sector component to that is $4 trillion. Mm. So the value of their companies went from $50 billion to $4 trillion. Wow. Forget about the bonuses. Think stock options. Yeah. I mean, these guys, Jay, they're buying 40,000 foot houses in different locations around the world. They're buying 200 foot boats. They're buying three, $400 million airplanes outfitted with hot tubs and saunas on the plane. Imagine having an airplane with a hot tub and a sauna on the plane. These five bankers go out to dinner. It made all the news, uh, news feeds. They spend $62,000 for dinner. Five guys go out to dinner, spend $62,000 for dinner. I mean, what do you eat for $62,000? Turns out there were four bottles of wine for $15,000 a bottle. Well, what are the, what are the restaurants even doing stocking $15,000 bottles of wine? And what is it that these people do that provide a service to anybody that they should be rewarded like this? And the answer is absolutely nothing. It beats me, Larry, in the business that I'm in, in the exploration business. I mean, I'm not an exploration guy, but I uh, I analyze companies, look at companies that are out exploring and developing and building gold mines and other, other mining projects, and I see the people who are actually making it happen. I see the, the mining engineers, the geologists who first find the deposits. I see those guys, and I've been underground, a mile underground at a mine up in Manitoba, you see these guys that work extremely hard, that have talent and skills, that make this incredibly complex thing called a mine come into production. And those guys, you know, they're doing okay. They're maybe, maybe at best in good times. They're, they're living a nice, maybe upper middle class uh, lifestyle. But then who really makes the monies? Uh, the, the people that really are getting wealthy, it, it's the investment banks that finance these guys, and they're able to dictate the terms they get. Uh, they get, uh, they get, they, first of all, they make sure that they finance these companies when their share prices are extremely low. They make sure they get plenty of warrants that they can exercise. The shareholders who are putting their faith in the company are sitting there and the amount of shares, uh, just skyrocket and the bankers are running off with the money and, uh, everybody else, um, you know, if, if in good times they do okay, but the real wealth is siphoned off. I see it firsthand, exactly what you're talking about. And of course, I also... It's not yeah, mining. 
Yeah, no, I think it's probably true in all of the industries, the farmers, the manufacturers, the miners, the engineers. Well, manufacturers, the these same Wall Street guys, they have literally, uh, through the money creation uh, feature, they have really transformed America from being a manufacturing powerhouse. And now, uh, I mean, so, so much manufacturing has gone away. I understand that more than 50,000 factories have closed. Uh, something like 8 million manufacturing jobs have been lost. Right. Those are wealth-creating jobs, aren't they, Larry? Well, these are the really good-paying jobs, right? You know, ma- ma- making stuff. And it's not like stuff isn't being made. It's just not being made here. And right. what they've done with all this money creation is that they have in, they've made America an expensive place to do business. Yeah, really what you have is a cost arbitrage between America and places like China and South America and Vietnam and the Philippines and whatnot. And so what happens is that people locate their factories where they have lower costs. And I have a very good chart that shows this. And as the cost, uh, the cost level in the United States started to increase, and it really uh, started to increase greatly right after Nixon uh, defaulted on the last sovereign promise of the United States to redeem the paper for gold. In and the first thing to leave was the, or the machine, uh, excuse me, were the uh, 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 manual intensive uh, labor. So there used to be in this region where we live a huge garment center manufacturing uh, uh, center, and all those jobs left. And then as you go further up the curve, uh, all the shoe manufacturing left. There's only one shoe factory left in the whole country. It's called mm-hmm. Allen Edmonds there in the Northwest. And then all the televisions left and the microwaves. I mean, as you go up the curve today, all the stuff we have, you know, uh, uh, things like iPads, uh, um, uh, uh, Apple computers, PCs, all made in China, or Japan, or whatnot. I mean, all of this had to do with the money creation. And you've got 16 million people unemployed. You've got another 6 million people who they don't count as unemployed. I mean, the whole thing has just been horrendous. And on top of that, millions of airline workers, textile workers, steel workers, and others have lost their pensions and benefits. You've got a $3 trillion hole in the pension system. What's going on here? Well, Larry, I can remember uh, going back a, a few presidential elections ago when a fellow named Ross Perot was there, and he talked about this giant sucking sound of jobs being lost. He wasn't even worried that much about China at that point. It was more a Mexican issue uh, when we were looking to put NAFTA together, and he was dead fast against it. And when I first started to, uh, what you're saying, first started to resonate with me was when I was working at, at that time it was NMB, became ING Bearings. At that time, I remember the discussion among my colleagues. They were either in favor of the Democratic candidate or the Republican candidate, but you could not find anyone who thought that Ross Perot and his ideas about uh, about trade, and I don't think Ross Perot was ever t- totally against trade, but uh, maybe he wasn't against it at all. Maybe he just was in favor of fair trade of some kind. But the point was that there was nobody that wanted to hear anything about what Ross Perot had to say, and the reason was, I believed was that ING had a huge interest in Mexico, and they wanted to keep, uh, keep, keep seeing business expand into Mexico where they could finance it and, get, and, and make a lot of money. Do you think that's what was going on? Well, I've, I've, given, uh, I've done programs on this. And uh, let me just tell you, when David Ricardo, as you may know, an economist in the early sure. part of the 19th century, proposed free trade, the notion was that exports would pay for imports. Mm-hmm. And the whole notion of free trade is value for value, work for work. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the benefit of free trade is that you get a division of labor, people do what they do best, and everybody benefits. However, when you have irredeemable paper ticket money that's created without work, 
that is that is not work for work. When we import a whole bunch of stuff from China and pay for it with an irredeemable paper ticket, that mm-hmm. violates the condition of free trade. Mm-hmm. You see that? Yes. So really, what's happening here is wealth redistribution. It's really a fraudulent uh, conveyance. And the Chinese don't know it, or they didn't know it, or who knows if they know it. But the fact is, it is not trade. It is wealth redistribution. Yeah. Well, and again... Does that make sense to you? It does, Larry. And again, what would have happened if Nixon had not taken us off the international gold standard? Would have it been possible for this sort of, for these imbalances to have occurred? Uh, the imbalance is the you know, one-way trade, whereas we never have surpluses anymore. China keeps building up more and more dollar reserves, foreign currency reserves. Uh, would have it been possible if Nixon had not taken us off the gold standard in 1971 for this trade without, without value? You know, it's not value for value, as you say. We're giving them pieces of paper. We're getting their, their manufactured goods. But would have it been possible if Nixon hadn't taken us off the gold standard in 1971? Well, just be known... Uh, Nixon uh, had no choice. Mm-hmm. So if you go back to after World War II, say in the late 1940s, we had 22,000 tons of gold here in America. That, that's, uh, those were the Treasury holdings. Mm-hmm. And that's how they got this whole thing with Bretton Woods, where the dollar would be the reserve currency. And the reason they were able to do that is because we had so much gold, everybody had faith that if ever they uh, uh, proffered the paper tickets, they could get their gold. However, as the Vietnam War heated up and whatnot, they started issuing so much paper money for which they did not have gold. I mean, this is the, this is the fraudulent thing with, with fractional reserve lending. I mean, it's like the banks issuing promissory notes to redeem in gold on demand where they don't have the gold. And by the time the 1960s rolled around, uh, this, this became understood in a lot of countries. And the next thing you know, people like the Gaul and the British as well start redeeming small amounts of paper for gold. And by the time 1968-69 rolled around, uh, I think prior to that, the Gaul had made this uh, very important speech. And he said he wasn't going to allow America to buy up Europe, really meant France, uh, with paper ticket money. Printing press uh-huh. money is what he called it. But by then, you sort of had like an avalanche of other countries redeeming for their gold. So that 22,000 tons had gone down to about something like 8,800 tons uh, with a value, I think, of around $11 billion. I forget the value, but there was something like $100 billion worth of paper overseas. Mm. So if Nixon had not defaulted, the market would have defaulted for him. Mm-hmm. And then the dollar and the so-called dollar would have been naked. You know, it would have uh, chaos at that time. So Nixon, it's not like Nixon was a bad guy in this. He had no choice, and he didn't put this in motion. This was put in motion really uh, way way back when the Federal Reserve was formed in uh, 1913. Uh, Roosevelt really helped it along greatly by confiscating the nation's gold and making it a felony for Americans to own gold. That lasted for 40 years. So all those people in the gold business, what's the public policy justification for making gold ownership a felony? Do you know there's not hardly anybody in the gold business who can tell you the answer to that question? Yeah, what is the answer, Larry? <laughs> the reason they did it is because the banks were bust. And had, they, and had they not done it, it would have been apparent to everybody. So in order to disguise the default, uh, Roosevelt seized all the gold. And he actually says as much in his first fireside chat, which he gave on uh, March 12th, uh, 1933. So he's inaugurated on March 4th, 1933. First day in office on March 5th, 1933. He freezes all transactions in gold, closes the banks, 
And then on March 12, 1933, he gives his first fireside chat, and he explains why he closed the banks and froze all transactions in gold. And what he says, in effect, this is the first time you see anywhere, he says, there's not enough gold to go around. I'm paraphrasing him. And the reason there wasn't enough gold to go around is because the banks were issuing promissory notes we could get your gold on demand for which they didn't have the gold. So in other words, the banks engaged in fraudulent activity, and who took the hit? Gold. When in fact, what Roosevelt should have said, that the banks have acted improperly. Mm-hmm. However, Roosevelt, as you may know, uh, his family was a financial family. He was a Wall Street guy before he got into politics. His wife's family, the Delanos, they were also a financial uh, family. In fact, his favorite cousin was on the Board of Governors at the Fe- Delano. Was on the I think it was Freddie Delano was on the Board of Governors at the Federal Reserve. And one thing in life, for sure, Jay, you do not turn on your friends and family. Mm-hmm. And if you turn on your friends and family, who do you got left? So really what Roosevelt did is he protected them. He bad-mouthed the banks. A couple of bankers went to jail. But basically, he saved them. Right. And he, sh- and he should not have done that. He, he, they, they should have, right at that moment, said, look, this is, this is the result because a fraudulent issue of promissory notes for which there wasn't gold. And gold is required by the Constitution. He should have reasserted the monetary powers and disabilities of the Constitution. He didn't want to do that. Well, Larry, uh, that makes sense to you. Yeah, it, it, it certainly does make sense to me. I th- I'm glad you explained that because uh, one of the things I hear now from a lot of people when you say we, you know, if you say that we should go back to some sort of a gold, at least a gold-backed monetary system or an exchangeable system where you could, where you could, uh, you know, take your paper to the bank and, and take out ounces of gold. The, the main excuse that I hear from most people is there's not enough gold around in the world. So I'd like you to comment on that after we come back from a break. We're going to have to take a commercial break now, Larry. Uh, and, and as soon as we come back, I'd like to pick up on that thought. Is there enough gold to go around right now, uh, given the enormous amount of paper that is out there, the enormous amount of money that the fraudulent creation of money, as you put it, by the banks, not you know over decades, actually. So uh, if we can hold that thought, I'd like to come right back to that, uh, Larry, and get your thoughts on that and much, much more. So we're going to be right back with Larry Parks. As soon as the commercial break is over, don't go away. We'll be right back. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Crocodile Gold Corp. is a new gold producer with Bite. Our operating gold mines are in the Northern Territory of Australia. Crocodile Gold plans to produce 100,000 ounces of gold in 2010, increasing to 200,000 ounces of gold in 2011. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometers. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let the snappy opportunity pass by as regular listeners to this show know i am very bullish on gold and especially gold mining stocks one of my favorite gold mining companies is metanor resources traded toronto and the pink sheets this is a new gold producer it is using cash flows from its berry mine in quebec to finance growth of that mine and to put the world famous quebec bachelor lake mine back into production this stock has been recommended by my newsletter because i do believe it holds extraordinary upside price potential with relatively low levels of risk visit metanor's website at metanor.ca or subscribe to my newsletter for more information. 
The high-risk but high-reward business of mineral exploration is key to discovery and development of America's next generation of mines. A leader in this search is Millrock Resources. Based in Anchorage, Millrock is revealing the astounding potential for gold deposits in the Alaska frontier. In Arizona, the target is giant, hidden porphyry copper deposits. Financing this search are joint venture partners Tech, Ballet, Inmet, Kinross, and Altius, major industry players. Together, the aim is discovering world-class gold and copper deposits to help secure America's productive future. Investors can share in the potential rewards. Millrock trades on the TSX Venture Exchange, symbol MRO. North Atlantic Resources is a gold exploration company with three projects in Mali, West Africa. With successful drilling programs and new discoveries made this year, we are in an excellent position to advance our premier FT project to development. We have a 43-101 compliant resource of approximately 600,000 ounces of gold, with a target to increase to over 1 million ounces. North Atlantic trades under the symbol NAC on the TSX Venture Exchange. Learn more about NAC. Go to our website at www.nac.com. Briggs Gold is a growing gold producer with expected production of about 85,000 ounces of gold this year from its Black Fox mine in the Timmins Gold District in Canada. Next door to Black Fox, Briggs has the exciting Gray Fox Pike River Gold Project. Briggs is also advancing its gold fields project in Saskatchewan, Canada, and its promising exploration projects in Mexico and the Dominican Republic. All of its gold assets are in low-risk operating jurisdictions. Consider Briggs as your gold investment choice. Briggs is listed on the MX and TSX under the symbol BRD. American Bonanza Gold's project, located in Arizona, is scheduled for production in 2010. American Bonanza Gold announced the positive results of its recent feasibility study at its 100% owned Copperstone Gold Mine. The mine is estimated to produce an average of 45,000 ounces of gold annually. At the current spot gold price, this will result in an IRR of 120%. Join the gold bull market. Invest in American Bonanza Gold. Visit the website at AmericanBonanza.com for more exciting information. Don't miss this great opportunity. Revolution Resources Corp. is a publicly trading exploration company that trades under the symbol RV on the TSX Exchange. Led by an experienced management team with a track record for discoveries, Revolution has initiated drilling on the company's newly acquired Champion Hills Gold Project in North Carolina. Revolution is focused on making a world-class discovery in an established gold belt, and with over $5 million in the Treasury, Revolution is effectively positioned to do so. Please visit www.revolutionresourcescorp.com for further information. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Try not to try too hard, it's just the love there You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm pleased to have with me uh, back after the commercial break, Dr. Larry Parks. 
Larry, we talked before the break about uh, this notion that there's not enough gold to go around. You mentioned uh, that that's really what what happened. The banks were fraudulent during the 1930s, basically, and they uh, and Roosevelt uh, made an excuse essentially uh, for for uh, confiscating gold. Um, and but I'm hearing the same discussion these days. I mean, when you when you propose the notion that we should go back to a sound monetary and asset based monetary system of gold and or silver. People say, well, there's not enough of the metal to go around, given the enormous amounts of money created. What are your thoughts on that? Well, the answer is there isn't enough gold to redeem all this paper. But that's not a problem for gold. That's a problem of issuing all this paper. And really, you know, uh, going back to Roosevelt, I mean, this didn't happen only in the 30s. This business of the banks issuing promissory notes to redeem the paper on demand, uh, this goes back, you know, to the 17th century. However, in the 19th century in America, the amount of promises that the banks issued were limited, uh, in fact, because with minor exception, bank officers and directors were personally liable to depositors. Personally liable. So if the bank went bust, the houses, the assets, everything owned by the bank officers and directors, that would go into the pot. But when the 20th century rolled around, now you have this corporate veil, and now they can shoot the moon. If they win, they keep the winnings. If they don't, other people take the hit. So back to this business of not enough gold. Until Roosevelt gave that fireside chat on March 12, 1933, you will never find any place in the literature anyone claiming that there's not enough gold. There's plenty of gold. And very importantly, uh, for those folks listening, uh, we are not advocating the system where irredeemable, where paper is backed by gold. That is not what we're talking about. That is not what the Constitution requires. There's nothing in the Constitution, by the way, about the gold standard. What the Constitution requires, and the founders realized this, is gold and silver as money. Now, you're not going to carry around gold and silver. You're going to deposit someplace and get a piece of paper, but the piece of paper is not money. So it's like I pay you with a check, Jay. I haven't paid you till you cash the check. If I pay with a credit card, I haven't actually paid until you get your money. It's mm-hmm. important for people to understand that the money needs to be gold and silver. Mm-hmm. And this is really what the founders intended, and this is the way the Constitution is written. And all of these politicians have taken a solemn oath to uphold and defend the Constitution. Let's have it the way it's supposed to be. And that protects ordinary people. So a lot of times you see in, in, in the newspapers now, uh, this fellow Zolik heads the World Bank, uh, started talking about a gold standard, and all of the guys like uh, Brad DeLong and others come out and they say it's not workable. Well, they're right. It isn't workable. But workable for whom? It's not workable for, for, for the financial guys. Mm-hmm. But if you have gold and silver as money, it's very workable for the manufacturers. It's very workable for ordinary people. I mean, how would you like your pension, Jay, to be a pile of gold? as opposed to a piece of paper where they're promising you something and you have counterparty risk. I have a notion that if, if my pension fund were in gold, I would have some purchasing power left. I'm not sure that I'm going to have too much with the pension fund, that the pension plan that I have, the meager one that I have as it is. But uh, Okay, so are you talking then, Larry, about, you know, we have this fractional reserve system, right? So are you talking about a, a system that would not allow banks to leverage up on the gold that they're holding in their uh, in their coffers? It's not a matter of not allowed, Jay. I mean, banks can do whatever they want. I mean, first of all, they shouldn't be guaranteed. The balance sheets should not be guaranteed by the taxpayers. I'm right. talking about that the money should be gold and silver. 
not mm-hmm. bank notes, not Federal Reserve notes, not any kind of piece of paper, not something that's redeemable, backed by, linked to, somehow connected to gold. The money needs to be gold and silver. Mm-hmm. And the guys who really thought this through the best uh, were the founders. And they had had an experience with paper money. Uh, and also they knew about the, uh, the French experience, uh, you know, after, after the revolution. Um, and they knew about John Law. You know, the par- by the way, every time you had paper money, the paper money went away. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's no exceptions. Mm-hmm. So when they wrote the Constitution, uh, in Article 1, Section 8, they give the Congress the power to coin money, mm-hmm. not print it. There is no power to print money. There is, mm-hmm. no, there is no authorization for paper money. But to coin money, which means a medal. A coin, well, actually, in Article 1, Section 10, they say that the states may make a payment only in gold and silver. They're talking about gold and silver. Mm-hmm. I want to tell you a story. This is a very good story about Thomas Jefferson, which will give you a feel for why the founders felt so strongly on this issue. May I tell you that story? Sure. Sure. So it seems Jefferson was married to a woman whose father was one of the richest men in the colonies. His name was uh, John Wales. And he made his fortune primarily from slave trading, and he was also a very large plantation owner in Virginia. Mm-hmm. And John Wales died in 1773. And he left a huge estate. By the way, the source of this information comes from a wonderful book. It's mistitled. The title of the book is called Principal and Interest. The author is Herbert Sloan, who heads the history department at Barnard College at Columbia. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so, so John Wales left this huge estate. He made Jefferson and Jefferson's two brothers-in-law the executors of the estate. Uh, the fact, though, it turned out Jefferson was really in charge. And the assets of the estate were worth something like twenty, thirty thousand pounds, I forget, the which consisted of slaves and plantations, and the liabilities were eleven thousand pounds, which was uh, money that uh, Wales owed to financiers in Britain. In those days and today as well, if a executor distributes the assets of an estate without settling out the liabilities, he becomes personally liable for the for the liabilities. <laughs> personally liable. But in this case, the assets were so much greater than the liabilities, and besides, Jefferson's two brothers-in-law wanted their share. Jefferson felt comfortable in doing that, and so he sold the slaves and the, um, and the uh, plantations. And in those days in Virginia, people didn't have enough money to make a big purchase like this. And the way they would do it is what we call today vendor financing or seller's mortgage uh, in those days, the terminology was that the buyer would issue a bond to the seller, and over time, the buyer would pay off the bond. And that's what happened in this instance. However, in 1776, the revolution started. Virginia issued paper money. They made the paper money legal tender. The purchasing power of that paper money went to zero, and the people who owed Jefferson the money on the bonds paid him off with the worthless money. Mm. But Jefferson still owed the 11,000 pounds to the financiers in Britain, and his whole life he was never able to work his way out of that debt. And he died a bankrupt. They tried auctioning off his stuff at Monticello, didn't bring in enough money. And so when Jefferson said that the paper money was a cheat, he wasn't talking about from, from economic grounds or, you know, some theory. He had actually been cheated, and big time. And mm. so had all of the other gentry in Virginia, including James Madison. Madison was a large plantation owner. He saw the revolution coming. He had leased his plantations, and the people to whom he leased it paid him off with the worthless money. Mm. And the same thing for George Washington. And so Mm. when they went to the Constitutional Convention, now they got Jefferson out of town as the ambassador to France. 
they weren't supposed to write the Constitution. They were supposed to amend the Articles of Confederation, which were thought to be defective because it didn't give the government the power to tax. And what they did was they used the Articles of Confederation as a template, and they went down all the items in the Articles and transferred it to the Constitution. The Articles allowed the government to issue, the Congress to issue paper money. It's called the Mitting Bills of Credit. Mm. When they got to that part, they debated it, and they overwhelmingly voted it down. There is no authorization in the Constitution for paper money. Wow. And so they gave, in Article 1, Section 8, says to give the Congress the power to coin money. That's it. So, so, business, so this business of issuing paper money, the government never issued paper money you know, prior to the, uh, prior to the uh, uh, Civil War. Mm-hmm. I mean, all that paper money was bank money, and it wasn't legal tender. Mm-hmm. Well, that's uh, very interesting. Of course, nobody seems to pay much attention to that constitutional issue these days, do they? Well, the government schools don't teach about the Constitution anymore. No. And even in college, now they have this notion, uh, Dr. Vieira likes to say, the living Constitution depends who's living. They just just keep modifying it as they go along. Exactly. Uh, The Constitution really protects us, and one of the things we should be doing is looking to the Constitution. Well, we do know, you and I do know, that there's one congressman who is uh, really, uh, really championing exactly that, and that's Ron Paul. Ron, Ron Paul is our hero in the Congress, and a longtime friend, and very supportive of what we're doing here at the Foundation for the Advancement of Monetary Education. Absolutely, he, he is. He is and on our advisory board, and he, he is the best. And you hope have... that his son is going to follow in his footsteps. Let's, let's hope that he will. Um, I, I, like, I find this interesting, uh, very interesting idea that the bankers at one time were personally liable. Uh, I mean, that's really what we need to bring back, isn't it? it, it now it's the opposite. It's like if the bankers screw up, we as taxpayers are liable to the bankers. That's it's incredible. Right. It's perverted, isn't it? Uh, I mean, there's a, there's a, uh, I mean, I have the reference, but it's, I think it was in, in one of these towns in Italy, it was, I think it was in the 14th century. Uh, the bank said overpromised, the bank went bust, and the remedy for the people in that town they took that banker right out and they hunk him right on the spot. Mm-hmm. I mean, how's well, that the disincentive, you know, for screwing around with people's money? Uh, Larry, you, you say sometimes, and, and maybe you can just clarify this, why do you say that the U.S. monetary system violates the rule of law? Well, because it's not in conformity with the Constitution. I mean, the okay. Constitution is the overriding law of our land, and anything that's not in conformity with the Constitution cannot be lawful. And mm-hmm. so the irredeemable paper tickets that we call dollars, they're not dollars. Mm-hmm. And also, the Constitution does not give the Congress the power to create money. And by the way, Jay, the only way you can create anything, the only one that creates anything is God. The rest of us have to produce it. Mm-hmm. All right. That's a good so, point. So there's no, there's no creating dollars. You actually have to produce dollars. And the way our government is set up originally is that the sovereignty for the monetary system rests with the people, not with some banking cartel. And if mm-hmm. the people want more money, they've got to go mine gold or silver, take it to the mint. We had uh, 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 free coinage, and the silver or gold gets minted into coins. That's how you get more money into society. Not the banks do this business with the money multiplier and whatnot. This is all dishonest. Mm-hmm. Or, of course, the companies that are sponsors of this show go out and find the gold. They mine it from the earth, and that would be another way. Uh, well, yeah, and then that gold is taken to the mint. That's mm-hmm. what free coinage was about. Mm-hmm. And the mint would take that gold or silver and make it into coins. Mm-hmm. And the penalty, by the way, in the Coinage Act of 1792 for screwing around with that was death. 
They didn't fool around in those days. Um, people took money. People have to. You know, you, de- you depend for for future for your future years. There comes a time for everybody. Everybody listening to the show. Everybody on the planet. There comes a time when you can't work anymore. You get sick. You get old or whatnot. And the only way you're able to stay alive is you have to have savings. Mm-hmm. And that savings better be something that's real, because if it's an irredeemable paper ticket and that becomes worthless, you have no way to live. Well, that remember this guy Paul Klebnikov? Does that name ring a bell to you? Not offhand, Larry. He was, he was oh. the editor for Forbes that got murdered in, in Russia a few years ago. Uh-huh. I run a couple of speaker programs here in New York. I became friendly with him. And mm-hmm. he told me that when the Russian ruble collapsed, longevity went down five years for men, four years for women. Wow. So if you're old and your savings disappear, how do you buy the stuff you need to stay alive? Mm-hmm. And the answer is you don't and you die. Mm-hmm. That's how important money is. Well, we've been trained to think that somehow the government will take care of us, haven't we? We've got Social Security, supposedly, and people are really, again, it's a faith issue. We're putting our faith in these same people that are maybe the foxes that are guarding the chicken coop, so to speak. You know, Jay, it's it's wishful thinking. I mean, today the Congress has something like a 20% approval rating. Mm -hmm. I mean, mean, people do not trust them, and they shouldn't trust them. Mm -hmm. And so the notion that they trust them, you know, with their pensions, with their longevity money and whatnot, it's really crazy. I mean, if people want to protect themselves, the best thing they could do right now, right now, is to go out and buy U.S. gold eagles and take possession and put those gold eagles in a vault. That is the very best thing people can do. Well, okay, Larry, that leads me to a question uh, that I know is on the minds of many, many people. I know how you're going to answer it because you and I have talked about it before. But what happens um, if we do that? Isn't it possible the government confiscated gold once in the United States? Isn't it? very possible, if not likely, that if wealth is transferred from the dollar to gold and silver, that they won't do it again. Uh, Jay, it's possible. However, uh, the reason they did it that time was because gold was still a monetary metal and people were using it as money. No one's using it as money anymore. Mm -hmm. I mean, it doesn't circulate. Uh, You might say that uh, they might want to grab it because uh, they might want to use it as money and, and pull it in. Truth, truth be known, the politicians can do anything they want. Mm-hmm. But if you don't, but uh, gold is the safest way to play this. If you don't uh, change your irredeemable paper tickets into gold, what are you going to change it into? No, that's the point. Uh, silver, possibly. But that's well, the trouble with silver, Jay, is that it's, it's very bulky. Mm-hmm. And so with silver, it is very hard for you to take possession. So half a million dollars worth of silver is about, maybe today it's probably about 1,200 pounds, half a ton. Mm-hmm. Where are you going to yeah. put it? I don't know. Uh, half a million dollars worth of gold is, a, let's see, that would be about um, um, what, what, uh, 300, 300 gold coins. It's about yeah. the size of maybe uh, 20 rolls of quarters. Mm-hmm. You can easily put that into a safe deposit box. Mm-hmm. So the problem with silver is you can't take possession. Larry, That's you... a practical matter. Right, I understand that. You can have small amounts of silver coins around and, and you know, can keep them, but any serious amount of wealth is very difficult to store in silver. I, I get it. Um, Larry, you're, you're of the opinion, and, and I know that you and I both agree on this, and lots of our friends do too, that the U.S. monetary system is going to blow up. Uh, provide some evidence. Uh, help us, help those of our listeners that may not be as familiar with this issue and why you think it's going to blow up. And, and how is it going to, is it going to blow up into a hyperinflation or are we going to see some sort of an implosion or deflationary uh, collapse of the banking system? 
hyperinflation 100%. And the reason you know for sure, and you can be absolutely certain that it's going to blow up, and you know, Jay, my, my original background was science and engineering. Any scientist, any engineer, cross-culture, cross-time will confirm to you that any system that doesn't have a self-correcting mechanism blows up. Mm-hmm. So, for example, in your body, uh, you get some kind of sickness or whatnot, the white corpuscles spring into action or whatnot, but without that self-correcting mechanism, you die. You have mm-hmm. a coffee pot that's blowing, you know, you heat it up and whatnot, you have a spout. It, as, as the steam pressure builds up, the steam escapes, it goes back, you have a self-correcting mechanism. The self-correcting mechanism in the monetary system used to be, up until August 15, 1971, was that some of the irredeemable paper ticket dollars created of nothing were redeemable by foreign governments and foreign central banks at the rate of $35 for an ounce of gold. That was, that was the self-correcting mechanism. After that self-correcting mechanism was severed, now there is no mechanism for increasing financial wealth, increasing debt, and increasing leverage. And if you look at any of the charts, you see they're all going exponential. Mm-hmm. And history tells us that whenever the monetary authorities have the ability to issue paper ticket money, there always comes a time when they cannot resist the temptation to overissue. And the Catholic Church has a line for this, and the Catholic Church has this exactly right. And the line is, in the face of temptation, reason succumbs. Mm-hmm. And one of the books I've been pushing, I'm annotating it now. I'm sure you've seen it, uh, Fiat Money, Inflation in France by Andrew yes. and White. So White was, as you may know, was, the, uh, was uh, president of Cornell University. He was one of the preeminent uh, historians of the 19th century. And after the Civil War, he collected everything there was about uh, in France and in the United States about the French experience with irritable paper ticket money after the revolution. He wrote this wonderful book. You can buy it off Amazon. It's, it's, it's 90 pages. It's a quick, easy, entertaining read. And the reason it's important is because the same arguments at that time put forth in the French Parliament is the same stuff we're hearing from Chairman Bernanke and all these people who say Krugman and whatnot. You've got to keep printing. Mm-hmm. And as you keep printing, there comes a time when they just print too much, and the next thing you know, the whole thing's worthless. And so as they're printing in France, the first thing they do is they have penalties for people who will not take the paper money, just like our wage and price controls. And so they might seize their goods, put them in irons, irons. And then a second defense, uh, they find them and they put them in irons for 30 years. And finally, they pass something called the law of the maximum. If you didn't accept the paper money, they would kill you. Mm-hmm. All right. But the point is, uh, people of their free will never take paper money if they have a choice. And the mm-hmm. guys who put their finger right on this and had it exactly right in the 19th century was the American labor movement. And they said, and this had to do with legal tender, they said, if the money's good, why do you have to force people to use it? Wow. And if the money's not good, why should you force people to use it? And the reason they force you to use it here is because the paper ticket money provides incredible profits to the financial sector. And as Dick Durbin said, the financial guys have bought off the Congress. You see what's happened here? This is wealth transfer. Well, it and people happens. better wake up and protect themselves, or they're going to find themselves at the short end of the stick when the, when the irredeemable paper ticket money approaches its cost of production, which always happens, which is near zero. We're going to have a country full of paupers, those that don't protect their wealth by switching their paper into something of of lasting value. Larry, I want to ask you, we are almost out of time here, but I want to ask you, you talked about this uh, irresistible urge to keep printing money, to, and it grows almost exponentially, doesn't it? 
Well, there's always a reason to print more money. I mean, today, if you look at the fiscal situation, you know, for the United States government, they got trillion-dollar deficits every year as far as the eye can see. How are those deficits going to be funded? And we're talking now about all the entitlements, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. I mean, I mean you get the list is endless. And I'm not the only, I mean, lots of people have rung the bell on this. Uh, Pete Peterson uh, uh, with his Concord Coalition and many others have rung the bell. But you don't see any, any reduction in spending. No, you Matter don't. of fact, you know, if you take a chart, and I've made these charts, and government spending just keeps going up. Yep, and you so, really do. And, and, and we had on this show Lawrence, uh, Professor Lawrence Kotlikoff of Boston University, uh, who I believe is a member of the Peterson Institute. He talked about the unfunded liabilities of the United States, the present value of the unfunded liabilities as being something like $202 trillion, not the 9 or $12 trillion that the government owns up to. So my point is this. We're seeing now QE2, the quantitative easing 2, which is just really a euphemism for printing money. Do you think there's going to be a QE3, a QE4, et cetera, et cetera? Undoubtedly. By the way, I did a, a very strong television program last week on this. And anybody who wants to watch it, if you just go on Blip TV, that's blip.tv, uh-huh. search Larry Parks, uh, Larry Parks show, you'll see this. I call it a QE2, Money Creation Gone Wild. Mm-hmm. And it, it's a very strong show. Like and Girls Gone Wild, but this is Money Creation Gone Wild. Exactly. That's how I start the show. I mean, remember, girls gone wild. They take the they take the clothes off, whatnot. There's money gone wild, boy. Girls gone wild have nothing on this. Uh, These uh, people are out of control. A monetary orgy. That's By the way, lip. just two two days ago, one more yeah. thing, very important. Uh, two days ago, I was at the uh, New York Society of Security Analysts for a presentation by James uh, Bullard. He is the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis. Mm-hmm. And in response to a question from me, he said in so many words. And it's a very close paraphrase. The dollar is is the a domain of the treasury. Because mm. I'd asked him, you know, what what the contingency plan was if the in the event the dollar starts to depreciate. I mean, what are mm-hmm. these guys going to going to do? Mm-hmm. And he said, in so many words, I mean, and it's not word for word, but it's close to it. He said, well, that's the treasury's problem. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's going to be everybody's problem, I think, Larry, and it's going to be everybody's. Everybody's problem that hasn't prepared themselves, and this is what this show is about, this show called Turning Hard Times into Good Times, is trying to understand the problems so that we can protect ourselves. And I think you've done a remarkable job of helping our audience, our listeners, understand a little bit better. And honestly, I would suggest very strongly to our listeners that they not only go uh, to Blip TV and... Uh, and do a search for Larry Parks, uh, Lawrence, Dr. Lawrence Parks. But also you have a website that is very, very informative. Could you tell our listeners what that it's is, Larry? Fame.org, F-A-M-E.org. Fame stands for the Foundation for the Advancement of Monetary Education. It's an excellent site, folks. I've been there many times. It's, there's a lot of great quotes. There's a lot of great articles. There's just a lot of great education. Larry, thank you so much for being with us uh, today. We'll definitely have to have you on again sometime because you have a wealth of information, and you are helping people help themselves because you really can't put your faith in government. Uh, our founding fathers understood that. That's why they wanted our government to be limited, and they wanted people to, uh, you know, to be honest, to work hard. And uh, we've been deceived, but honestly, we've maybe not cared enough. Maybe we're too interested in desperate housewives or the football games or whatever it is. Nothing wrong, I suppose, with a little entertainment. But, boy, we better be awake. I think it was Thomas Jefferson that said the price of of liberty is eternal vigilance. And, Larry, you have been very vigilant. I want to thank you again 
for all of your help uh, to me over the years, and thank you for sharing your thoughts and ideas. Again, I want to encourage all of you to go to fame.org uh, and go to Blip TV and, and uh, Google in Larry Parks uh, to get his latest television show. There's so much information. There's so much good information, quality information. Not just is it interesting, but it's going to help you save your wealth and save your, uh, the well-being of your family and those you love. Thank you very much, Larry, for being with us. Folks, don't go away. After the, uh, at the turn of the, uh, after the next commercial, we're going to have Eric Sprott back with us. Eric Sprott is one of the preeminent investors in Canada, and Eric understands. I have an idea that Larry is going to agree with most of what, or I should say Eric is going to agree with most of what Larry just said. Uh, but in any event, uh, Eric will probably also have some great investment ideas to share with you. So don't go away. We'll be right back at the, uh, at the top of the hour with Eric Sprott. Business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. American Bonanza Gold's project, located in Arizona, is scheduled for production in 2010. American Bonanza Gold announced the positive results of its recent feasibility study at its 100% owned Copperstone Gold Mine. The mine is estimated to produce an average of 45,000 ounces of gold annually. At the current spot gold price, this will result in an IRR of 120%. Join the gold bull market. Invest in American Bonanza Gold. Visit the website at AmericanBonanza.com for more exciting information. Don't miss this great opportunity. The high-risk but high-reward business of mineral exploration is key to discovery and development of America's next generation of mines. A leader in this search is Mill Rock Resources. Based in Anchorage, Mill Rock is revealing the astounding potential for gold deposits in the Alaska frontier. In Arizona, the target is giant, hidden porphyry copper deposits. Financing this search are joint venture partners Tech, Ballet, InMet, Kinross, and Altius, major industry players. Together, the aim is discovering world-class gold and copper deposits to help secure America's productive future. Investors can share in the potential rewards. Mill Rock trades on the TSX Venture Exchange, symbol MRO. As regular listeners to this show know, I am very bullish on gold and especially gold mining stocks. One of my favorite gold mining companies is Metanor Resources, traded Toronto and the Pink Sheets. This is a new gold producer. It is using cash flows from its Berry Mine in Quebec to finance growth of that mine and to put the world-famous Quebec Bachelor Lake Mine back into production. This stock has been recommended by my newsletter because I do believe it holds extraordinary upside price potential with relatively low levels of risk. Visit Metanor's website at metanor.ca or subscribe to my newsletter for more information. North Atlantic Resources is a gold exploration company with three projects in Mali, West Africa. With successful drilling programs and new discoveries made this year, we are in an excellent position to advance our premier FT project to development. We have a 43-101 compliant resource of approximately 600,000 ounces of gold, with a target to increase to over 1 million ounces. North Atlantic trades under the symbol NAC on the TSX Venture Exchange. Learn more about NAC. Go to our website at www.nac.com. TSX.com. Crocodile Gold Corp. is a new gold producer with Bite. Our operating gold mines are in the Northern Territory of Australia. Crocodile Gold plans to produce 100,000 ounces of gold in 2010, increasing to 200,000 ounces of gold in 2011. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometers. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let this snappy opportunity pass by. 
Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Try not to try too hard. It's just a love affair. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to the second hour of Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. Again, I want to thank you for listening to the show and making this the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. I want to also thank our sponsors uh, for the second hour of today's show for making this show financially viable. Our sponsors for the second hour are Barkerville Gold, Crocodile Gold, Coral Gold, North Atlantic Resources, Adventure Gold, Brigus Gold Corp, Gold and Minerals, and Metanor Resources. I am really pleased to have with me today Eric Sprott. Eric is very well known in Canada, less so, I dare say, in the United States, but I think it's high time that people do learn to know him here in the U.S. as well because he has been one of, really been on the right side of the equity, commodities, and precious metals markets over the past 10 years or so, while most of the mainstream investors have not gotten it right for the most part. Uh, As an American who covers the natural resources uh, markets, of course, I have known Eric for some time and known of him, uh, and the brief encounters I've had with him has told me that he is not only a very successful investor and businessman, but he is also a classy gentleman who appears to be very humble for someone with his level of success. Uh, Eric has accumulated 35 years of experience in the investment community uh, after earning his designation as a chartered accountant. Uh, he entered the investment industry as a special, uh, as a research analyst at Merrill Lynch, and in 1981 he founded uh, Sprott Securities, now called Cormac Securities, uh, which today is one of Canada's largest independently owned securities firms. After establishing Sprout Asset Management, Inc. in December 2001 as a separate entity, Eric divested his entire ownership of Sprout Securities to its employees. Eric's investment abilities are well represented in his track record in managing the Sprout Hedge Fund, LP, Sprout Hedge Fund, uh, LP2, uh, Sprout Bull Bear RSP Fund, Sprout Offshore Funds, Sprout Canadian Equity Funds, Sprout Energy Fund, and Sprout Managed Accounts. He has way too many awards to continue reading on here, or we won't have any time left for Eric to talk. So I just want to get on to the discussion with Eric. Welcome, Eric, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Jay, it's a pleasure to be here, and uh, it was certainly uh, I've been aware of your contribution in the natural resource area, and I'm sure your listeners are very happy that uh, you've pushed as hard as you have for them to be uh, invested in the right place in this last decade. Well, that's very kind of you to say that, Eric. I, I, uh, I, I thank you for that. But I, I think that you have been a hero uh, in this industry. You have uh, been funding junior mining companies when precious few other people would a few years ago when the gold price was down, oh, you know, off, bouncing off that $250 level there a few years ago. Uh, and uh, you have been putting your money, your firm's money, um, your investors' money into the resource sector because you saw something that most – most um, mainstream people didn't see, 
so I want to explore some of the, some of your ideas about the economy, about the macroeconomic picture, and what you see there, um, what's going on now, and more importantly, where we should go from here. We've had a nice run. We certainly have had a good run. So we want to know, you know, how much further is this going to go? Uh, anyway, in an article that you co-authored a couple of weeks back with David Franklin, uh, who, by the way, was on this show uh, a, f- a couple of weeks back, uh, you quite clearly left it be known that you don't expect quantitative easing will be very effective. I want to ask you why you think that, but before you respond to that question, I also want to ask you if you think the first installment of quantitative easing was successful, and then uh, also... What would have happened if we didn't get QE1? Right. Well, it's interesting. Uh, well, I think the, the easiest thing to decide in, in that sort of multiplicity of questions is that uh, I, I think that QE1 was a failure. I mean, yes, the stock market rallied, but from an economics point, which really you must have the economy kicking along to sustain a stock market. But I think that, you know, the green shoots that we all saw back in uh, in uh, '09. Uh, as we got into 10, we realized, well, it's not nearly as robust as we imagined it. So I would say that uh, QE1 was not a success. And had it been a success, it's kind of like priming a pump, that it should then be left alone. Mm-hmm. The fact that we've had to have QE2 in such a, a quick fashion, I think, is a statement about what QE1 was. And, and in my mind, what I regard both the QEs as, it's a methodology for the Fed to finance Treasury borrowing, hmm. because I don't think there are buyers for the bonds. As you know, they have to issue a trillion and a half bonds each year, and, and it's very coincidental that you know these programs are going to be each uh, purchasing that kind of level of bonds. And I'm sure QE2 will be extended, or they'll call it QE3 as as, month, as soon as we get past June uh, 30th next year. So I don't regard uh, either. The QEs as something that's going to sustain us. It may provide some liquidity, but I might also add that there's been some pretty significant work done, both on liquidity and deficit spending, by people who would be considered kind of contrarians or people who have uh, unique views and views that don't work in the mainstream. That have suggested both deficit spending doesn't work. Uh, which uh, various people at Harvard University have opined on, and that liquidity really uh, is not going to sustain you. So I, my whole view has been that even since 2000, when we got on the gold bandwagon or precious metals bandwagon, we're going into a bear market. We're still in a bear market, but we have all these forces fighting it all the way, and we'll see where that all gets us. Mm. Uh, Ian McAvity, I know, recently pointed out, getting to the QE1 issue, that, we, uh, that we've had, I, I guess he figured something like $150 billion in GDP growth, but $3.5 trillion worth of stimulus and, and debt. So I guess getting back then um, to the question of, uh, you know, do, why do you think, um, do you, so you think this, this isn't going to work. So where do we go from here? We've got, uh, you know, QE2. What's that going to do to us? Mm-hmm. In fact, let me add on to uh, Ian's work because mm-hmm. we actually uh, did an article where we summed up all the various programs that uh, have evolved over the last few, few years, two years, and they added up to $7.9 trillion. And I'm talking about, you know, bailing out GMAC, AIG, Fannie, Freddie, all the different, the TARPs, the TELFs, the whatever. Mm-hmm. And when, when we look at the sum total of GDP growth, 
in that two-year period, it's about $200 billion of GDP growth with $7.9 trillion of stimulus. So the people who argue that uh, stimulus does not work, I think have been proven incredibly correct here because we can't just we can't even get this this thing uh, lit up there's just no way that we're getting it and we have the debt at the end of the day of course which is yeah. the biggest problem yeah indeed and it reminds me very much of what roosevelt's treasury secretary said after the uh, uh, after after stimulus measures were tr- were attempted during the great depression that uh, after 8 years they had as much unemployment as they had at the start and they had all of this debt to boot we're not seeing any improvement in the real economy are we uh, hardly anything. Hardly any, anyway. You, you get some months when uh, car sales go up or that home sales go up or, mm-hmm. you know, a month when retail's up 0.8 for the month and then the next month it's at down 0.1 or something. But it has been so lackluster, we just don't see job growth. And even, for example, the, the data that came out last week that suggested we had 150,000 new jobs, that was the BIS, BLS survey, um, the household survey said we lost 350,000 jobs. So uh, it's hard to imagine us adding jobs when so many uh, levels of government have to keep pruning back here. And uh, the consumer just doesn't have the wherewithal to buy more in volume. In fact, because there is a lot of inflation in energy and food prices, the consumer's ability to, to buy, other than those invested in gold stocks, must be diminishing. Mm-hmm. Well, it certainly would seem to be the case. Uh, the real, uh, the real purchasing power of Americans. I mean, they're losing their jobs. Their jobs, uh, you know, they're they're seeing lower wages, lower wage jobs. I mean, this has been a trend for some time. But let me ask you, Eric, how do you think this QE2 is going to play out? Then, will it be a harmless thing, or will it cause some damage either on the inflationary side or a deflationary side? How do you see it playing out? How do you think it's going to yeah. play out? I mean, it's a huge question that I really haven't uh, come down on in the sense that, you know, could we start a hyperinflation or do we just find out that it doesn't work and, you know, the economy keeps uh, bottom bouncing along and then maybe when, when we realize it, it hasn't caused any economic stimulus, do we then get a market sell-off? And if you get a market sell-off, of course, you will have a lot of deflation mm-hmm. unless we just go into outright extreme printing uh, but, you know, when you listen to the views of people outside of the United States now commenting on mm-hmm. QE2, it is not a very pleasant thing what, you know, the Chinese are saying and the Brazilians are saying and many other voices out there who up to this point have almost been quiescent and now they're becoming quite forceful, including the Dutch, uh, the uh, German finance minister. I mean, they're using some harsh words when it comes to their assessments of uh, QE2. I haven't uh, decided which way it's going to go because mm-hmm. you might keep this stock market up through sort of the extend and pretend policies and we keep uh, bumbling along. Um, I happen to, I, one of my great acquaintances is a fellow named Ian Gordon, who I'm sure you know very well. Ian's a and personal he, friend of mine. I've had right. him on this show uh, sure. a couple of times, and yes, I know him very well. And he's a deflationist, and I've kind of been in his school since uh, 2000. Uh, I mean, they're trying everything they can to create inflation, but maybe the the forces at work won't let them create inflation. Mm -hmm. In other words, if people turn their back on the currency of the bond market and rates ever went up, I mean, it would just be an utter disaster. So I'm not saying which way the the dime's going to fall here because I think we can wait. Uh, One thing that I feel very confident from an investment point of view 
is that if you're involved in precious metals, either way, you're going to maintain and or improve your purchasing power by owning those securities. So it's not critical for me to have to make that decision at this point in time. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, would you see gold perhaps being a better, a better metal to own than silver in a deflationary implosion, and perhaps silver better if we go in the other direction? Or, or... Well, you know, it's interesting because, uh, I mean, I happen to love silver today. I really do. I think silver might very well be... Uh, the investment of this decade, whereas gold was the investment of the last decade. And, of course, I love gold. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people might think that uh, silver would underperform if you were in a, def- in a deflationary environment. Um, and that's because of the industrial uses of the metal. But if enough people get distressed about their currencies, and let's face it, if you go into a deflationary environment, the odds of the debt being paid off start diminishing very, very quickly, and the leverage in the banking system just comes back to kill you. So you need to own something real. And there's so little silver to own that I think the investment demand would wait, would uh, certainly counteract any decline in uh, industrial, the waning of industrial demand for silver. So I, I think silver is going to be the investment of this decade. So you favor would favor silver no matter which way this tips uh, if we go inflation or deflation? Yeah. Well, it's interesting, Jay, the question, because, uh, I mean, I've been in it for 10 years, and I've really been a gold guy for 10 years, yeah. 11 years, and I can now see forces at work that tell me that silver is going to do something that's a little unusual going forward here. Mm-hmm. So that's why, as we talk today, I sound more like a silver bug than a gold bug, but I've been a gold bug <laughs> For 11 years, and I'm not changing my spots. I just can see evidence of uh, why silver should rise faster. Indeed. Um, well, gold has risen from, you know, let's say roughly around $250 as early as, I mean, as recently as 2002. It's, it had gone over 1400 I guess maybe we're a little below that today. But yeah. yet, as I've walked down the streets of New York here, I don't find many people at all talking about the virtues of buying gold and, or silver. Um, of course, the world I live in, the world you live in, we know people who are buying uh, gold and silver, the bullion, as well as uh, shares and ETFs yeah. and the like. But to drive the price up a gold, the price of gold up so dramatically as it has, it's not just a crazy few little retail investors that are buying it. Some pretty good-sized investors, people have to be buying gold in fairly good volume. Now, besides spread asset management, you guys yeah. buy a fair amount of it. Who are some of the other big players, do you think, that are out there? are really causing the gold price and the silver price to rise. Well, there's certainly a phalanx of new investors, and and I would call, you know, some of us have been involved with with it for 10 years. Mm -hmm. I would say a new phalanx came in a couple of years ago. John Paulson got involved, David Einhorn, George Soros, and, of course, these are all leading-edge guys. Mm -hmm. And I think their involvement... Uh, allowed the thought that, gee, maybe any ordinary investor or mutual fund manager or pension fund even could go there. Uh, but I can tell you from firsthand experience, it's very difficult to get pension funds interested in gold other than, you know, they'll buy the normal stocks that have to go into any uh, any portfolio. Right. So it's 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 a bit like uh, pulling teeth to get them all in, and I don't really think the public's been as involved as we might imagine with something having gone up by, you know, five or six hundred percent here. Well, and one thing, I can, one thing I'll leave with your listeners, Jay, mm-hmm. uh, as I toured the, the United States and Canada trying to sell the Sprott Physical Silver Trust, I was struck by 
how little institutions knew about the silver market. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was I was just blown away by sure. the, their lack of knowledge of the people who were involved in the silver industry. That's interesting. These are the professionals, of course. That, that These are the professionals, mm-hmm. and they that, hadn't really studied it. Mm-hmm. Well, it hasn't been put out in front of them. I think the mainstream has basically suggested they stay with paper money. Now, we had Dr. Larry Parks uh, on a few minutes ago before you, Eric, on this show, and he uh, pointed out a very interesting sent actually sent me a little article that I thought was very interesting. I'd like to share it with you and get your response. Uh, he uh, he said uh, this was on September 27th, uh, so very recently, the London Bullion Market Association conference in Berlin. Shine uh, Shane McIntyre uh, McGuire of the Teacher Retirement System of Texas explained that for a hypothetical 10 billion dollar pension fund, only about 0.15 percent or 15 basis points is invested in gold. Thus, out of the approximately uh, approximate 11.6 trillion in U.S. pension funds. Only about $17 billion has been allocated to gold in one form or another. Larry then goes on to explain how the uh, World Gold Council uh, sort of went out of its way over many years to try to tell people to, to downplay the notion that gold had any monetary aspect. It was just to be used as jewelry. He also points out how mainstream, uh, mainstream institutions like Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan, various people, were suggesting before that, you know, back in the, I guess in the 90s, maybe in the 80s, that people should put, um, you know, five to ten percent. That you should have five to ten percent of your portfolio in uh, in gold. Uh, now, what do you think would happen to the gold price if we started to see that in practice? Right. Yeah. Well, all I can say, Jay, is if everybody did what I did, mm-hmm. I happen to have for my accounts and me, uh-huh. I have about seventy percent of all our money in gold and precious metals, the stocks and the bullion. Uh-huh. And the bullion total is about 40%. Mm-hmm. And you know the answer. I mean, there is not, there's no room for everyone to get that involved. And uh, I'm glad that uh, the, the article pointed out that uh, the pensions aren't there yet. And I, we deal with a few pensions, and I swear they look at you like you've got three eyes when you suggest owning gold or silver. Uh, because the trustees can't deal with it. They're just not capable of imagining owning a commodity and and of course they're not students of the gold and silver game so they would have no understanding of what what the reasoning was and how they should be reacting mm-hmm. uh, I'd like to switch gears just a little bit Eric and ask you about some of the products that Sprott offers uh, investors uh, retail as well as institutional investors but I guess maybe more retails for uh, retailers for the for listeners of this show right. uh, first of all for the sake of Canadians that, that tune into this show and a lot of them do uh, you do have funds that invest in the RSP accounts, the retirement accounts? Oh, sure. We have uh, a, a Canadian, public Canadian equity fund or an equity fund. We have gold funds. Mm-hmm. We have an energy fund. Uh, we have two hedge funds in Canada, two different hedge funds. Oh, well, two, two that I run. We have another couple that other people here run. We have a small cap fund. Uh, we have a couple of uh, uh, private equity, uh, private lending and uh, bond funds. Uh, we have a lot of these uh, area covered. We have a fund that's uh, RSP eligible that, that owns just gold. And we have also, of course, the physical gold trust that's mm-hmm. available in Canada that's listed on the TSX. And, of course, it's listed as well in the, and on, it, on the Amex. And that can be used for retirement accounts in Canada? Uh, the, gold, the gold fund? Uh, yes. 
Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, is it is is it difficult for Canadians to move their money from? Uh, you know, is is the the Canadians like Americans have the same problem? Most of the funds are invested in everything that you and I, Eric, probably wouldn't want to own, or, or a good part of what we would not want to own. Right. What um, is it hard for Canadians to get out of one fund and into, say, one of your one of the Sprott funds? Is there are there usually oh. penalties attached to it? Well, there are some because sometimes there's front end charge and sometimes there's a transfer fee, but you know, I don't think, on the surface, it's not supposed to be difficult. If somebody wants to redeem one of our funds, they simply put in a redemption notice, and the money goes out the next day. That's one of the incredible things about about mutual funds. I mean, you get your money out at NAV the next day, which is a nice thing to be able to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, theoretically, they could sell out of one fund and move right back into another one same day, and, and well, it should be a... But I mean, out of I mean, out of Sprott and into another group of funds, or do the- no? What I mean is, if they wanted to sell a bond fund that's owned yeah. by one of our, run by one of our competitors and buy ours, that's not a very that's not difficult to do whatsoever. Okay, good. That's just yeah. that's that's the that answers my question. Um, you, so you have put together a gold and a silver ETF that, that trades down here in the in the states on the New York Stock Exchange. Right. Uh, but, Jay, it's, it's called a trust, and it's a very important distinction. Okay. It's not an ETF. And the reason it's important, and your, list, your particular U.S. listeners should know this, the, the GLD and the SLV, which are ETFs that own uh, gold and silver, respectively, because gold and silver are considered collectibles under the IRS code, the tax rate is at a higher tax rate than the normal capital gains rate. So, for example, today the tax rate is 28% uh, on the ETFs. And on our trust, which is tr- uh, treated like a common share equivalent, uh, the tax rate is th- on capital gains is 15%. So there's a huge tax advantage. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other, there's three other attributes that are important to uh, analyzing either our phys- physical silver trust or the gold trust. And that is that the gold is held by... Uh, the Royal Canadian Mint, mm-hmm. who's a crown corporation, uh, so we got a AAA-rated government, mm-hmm. and uh, they are the custodian. So that's the counterparty that you have. In the case of the, the gold and silver, your counterparties are HSBC and J.P. Morgan, two names that we've heard recently in the news, <laughs> because they've both been sued for manipulating one of the precious metals. Yeah. And that, which is kind of ironic, isn't it? Yeah. But that's your counterparty yeah. on um, on those two vehicles. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other unique feature that we have is that people, if they want to, can hand in their trust certificates and take the metal. Mm. And one thing, you know, you're probably aware that lots of people are concerned that maybe the gold and silver aren't in the trusts. I must say I don't have an opinion, but I keep my mind open on both options, by the way. And I'm going to love to see some of the evidence that might come out in, in these um, lawsuits that have been filed. Sure. But, but you can, you are allowed to redeem these units for gold and silver. And, of course, I can only assure you that we would be the last people in the world not to have the gold and silver. Because we've been such great believers. Whenever I've owned it, I've always taken physical delivery. I've never had a piece of paper saying I own gold. And I think that's very important that people have that ability. I certainly agree with you there, Eric. 
Uh, we only have a couple of minutes. I want to ask you uh, probably the most frequently asked questions in the, in the minds of most people, perhaps people that don't own, don't own or know very much about gold, and that is how high will the price of gold go? How, how high will the price of silver go? I personally don't like that, answer, that question. I don't like answering it because I think it's silly to try to measure something in a currency that is not a very reliable yardstick of, and in terms right. of measuring value. So the dollar, you know, God knows how many more of them Mr. Bank he's going to print, but... That yeah. said, where where can the price of gold go? If, if I mean, just well, just... to really to answer the question, that even the way you would answer it, I mean, you know, it's all a function of how much printing goes on, right? I mean, you got everyone. Every, there's so many countries printing money that we, we all know if you keep printing money, the money becomes valueless, and therefore the price of gold becomes infinite. Yes. And as uh, Robert Zelik uh, just said, he, he with the I think he's with the IMF or the World Bank. World Bank, yes. World Bank, okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, maybe we have to consider uh, gold as part of the reserve currency. And I'm sure the reason that those words would come out of his mouth is because he realizes that all the paper sloshing around in almost every country where, that has a senior currency, the governments are involved in printing money. So it's, it's a very ill-defined thing. I don't even try to say where it's going to go. All I know is it's going up. And when I first got into gold back in 2000, I thought, you know what? This is going to be a very, very difficult time because we're going to go a long, sustained bear market, which, of course, the the authorities have been fighting all the way. And I just want to survive on behalf of my clients. So i got to own gold and silver here. Uh And, of course, now we have these things causing the price to go up that I never would have imagined. I never would have imagined we would be printing money. Uh But here we are. And, of course, now the price has even gone higher than anyone would expect. So I think it's going to go up a long way. And if I could leave one other thing with you uh, with respect to silver. I think silver, which historically always traded a ratio of 16 to 1 to gold, Mm -hmm. will go back to that ratio. Mm. So if the price of gold is, you know, 3,200, the price of silver is going to be 200. And that's, I can just tell by the, the buying I see coming into the physical silver metal. Mm-hmm. that the price has to go higher because the, mm-hmm. the buying's coming in at a ratio of $1 of silver to $5 in gold. Mm. But wow. the price is 50 to 1, and the availability is 118 to 1 in terms of what you can buy. So right. pretty well, keen on silver here. Fascinating, uh, fascinating stuff, uh, Eric. Thank you so much. Unfortunately, we are out of time. Uh, we've got to, uh, to, to call it quits for now. We'd love to have you on some other time. You have so much to share. Thank you. It's very kind of you to share with our listeners. Folks, don't go away. I'm going to be right back with some final thoughts on today's show, so don't go away. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Parkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Gold Fields in British Columbia. Parkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer long by 20-kilometer wide geological belt, and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Parkerville's own proposed open pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Parkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Parkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. 
Brigus Gold is a growing gold producer with expected production of about 85,000 ounces of gold this year from its Black Fox mine in the Timmins Gold District in Canada. Next door to Black Fox, Brigus has the exciting Gray Fox Pike River Gold Project. Brigus is also advancing its gold fields project in Saskatchewan, Canada, and its promising exploration projects in Mexico and the Dominican Republic. All of its gold assets are in low-risk operating jurisdictions. Consider Brigus as your gold investment choice. Brigus is listed on the MX and TSX under the symbol BRD. North Atlantic Resources is a gold exploration company with three projects in Mali, West Africa. With successful drilling programs and new discoveries made this year, we are in an excellent position to advance our premier FT project to development. We have a 43-101 compliant resource of approximately 600,000 ounces of gold, with a target to increase to over 1 million ounces. North Atlantic trades under the symbol NAC on the TSX Venture Exchange. Learn more about NAC. Go to our website at www.nac.com. As regular listeners to this show know, I am very bullish on gold and especially gold mining stocks. One of my favorite gold mining companies is Metanor Resources Traded Toronto and the Pink Sheets. This is a new gold producer. It is using cash flows from its Berry Mine in Quebec to finance growth of that mine and to put the world-famous Quebec Bachelor Lake Mine back into production. This stock has been recommended by my newsletter because I do believe it holds extraordinary upside price potential with relatively low levels of risk. Visit Metanor's website at metanor.ca or subscribe to my newsletter for more information. Crocodile Gold Corp. is a new gold producer with Bite. Our operating gold mines are in the Northern Territory of Australia. Crocodile Gold plans to produce 100,000 ounces of gold in 2010, increasing to 200,000 ounces of gold in 2011. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometers. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let the snappy opportunity pass by voice america business network the bottom line in business try not to try too hard it's just a love you're listening to turning hard times into good times with your host jay taylor if you have a question or comment about today's show jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790 that's 1-866-472-5790 you can also send an email to questions taylor at gmail.com that's questions the number four taylor at gmail.com Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. Well, I'm very pleased to have had Larry Parks, a longtime friend of mine, come onto the show today to talk about his insights into the monetary disease that has inflicted Americans, and I think is taking away their personal liberties as well as their wealth. Larry is very familiar with how the banks are in the process of destroying the American middle class and our liberties. Larry's insights are very consistent with a number of people we have had on this show, dating back to our very first show in March of 2009, when Ed Griffin was my special guest. He is the author of The Creature from Jekyll Island, And Ed really, I think, explains as well as anybody has the powers behind the throne. Who are the people that really own the Federal Reserve and thus own the banking system and thus own, increasingly own our country? 
If there is one book that I think explains why rich bankers are getting bailed out at the expense of common folks, The Creature from Jekyll Island explains it best, and I highly recommend that you get a copy of this book and read it. It is extremely well documented. It is a book that will tell you beyond any uh, question, once you've read it, if you've read it honestly, who owns America and why the middle class is being destroyed. By the way, Jekyll is spelled J-E-K-Y-L-L, J-E-K-Y-L-L, and you can buy it online and perhaps at major bookstores, but certainly on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and so forth online. Since we spoke to Ed Griffin, we have had many people on our show that have collaborated Ed's ideas uh, and actually Larry Park's ideas today. I think if we uh, some of the folks we've had on in the past, Ron Paul, Adrian Salbucci, Daniel Estulin, James Perloff, John McManus, John Truman Wolf, many more folks also have really collaborated what Larry uh, Parks told us today. By the way, if you would like to go back and listen to any of the interviews with all those, with any of those folks, any or all of those folks I just named, and many, many more, you can simply uh, go to our website, the radio website, and click on the guest tab, and by alphabetical order, or you can just find the guest there, and that will tell you when they were on the show. Uh, we can go back to March of 2009. Ed Griffin, Mark Faber. Ron Paul, they were the, the earliest guests that I had. Well, Larry, I think, has really outlined the connection between uh, the, the demise or getting rid of the gold standard and providing the wherewithal for the bankers to rob the American public. The only thing you can do now, in my view, or one of the few things you can do now, in my view, for yourself and your family to retain wealth is to exchange increasingly worthless paper money for money that has intrinsic value, that being gold and silver. This week, uh, when this show airs, I will be in Geneva and Zurich, Switzerland, speaking at the Academy of Finance. Those are shows that I will be, uh, and that's why I'm pre-recording this show. Uh, I will uh, make the case in my talk in uh, Switzerland that the U.S. remains in huge trouble, that we are on the verge of a massive sea change in the global economy and the monetary system. And again, the only way that you can protect yourself is by owning gold and silver. Then I will uh, talk briefly about four companies at the show that are also uh, recommendations in my newsletter. Those four companies are Coral Gold, Golden Hope Mines, Gold Rich Mining, and a new selection for my newsletter, Revolution Resources Corp. Uh, I should mention that all uh, three of those companies, the only one that is not a sponsor of the show currently, is Gold Rich Mining. Next week, my main guest will be Roger Conrad, who specializes in higher-yielding utility stocks. How are retired people, people living on fixed incomes, going to put food on the table and pay their rent when the interest rates provided by Mr. Banky's ripoff scheme is 0%? Well, we think people should definitely own gold and silver stocks for sure, but most gold mining companies don't pay that great a dividend. That wasn't true in the 1930s. Homestake paid a great dividend, and I think the same thing is likely to happen again as gold mining, mining companies continue to increase profits. But for now, they don't. And so how are people to earn cash flow to pay the rent, put food on the tables? Roger Conrad has some really great ideas. I think some relatively safe ways that you can do that uh, to get some good income from utility stocks and other things. So we'll be talking to Roger Conrad next week. I should mention our newsletter promotion. For those of you who have not tried our newsletters, you can call Claudio Bossi at 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426. You can go to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com, 
And we have one-time only trial offers, special lower price trial offers for Chen Lin. What is Chen buying? What is Chen selling? Roger Wiegand's trader tracks at my newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. In closing today, I want to thank our staff at Voice America, starting with my senior executive producer, Tacey Trump, Ruben Colombe, my operations manager, Justin Jackman, my engineer. Thanks to all of you folks for making this show logistically possible. And thanks again to each of you for listening and making this by far the number one show on the Voice America business channel. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Now the thing about time is that time isn't really real. It's just your point of view. How does it feel for you? Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Crocodile Gold Corp. is a new gold producer with Bite. Our operating gold mines are in the Northern Territory of Australia. Crocodile Gold plans to produce 100,000 ounces of gold in 2010, increasing to 200,000 ounces of gold in 2011. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometers. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let the snappy opportunity pass by. Parkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Goldfields in British Columbia. Parkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer long by 20-kilometer wide geological belt and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Parkerville's own proposed open pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Parkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Parkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. North Atlantic Resources is a gold exploration company with three projects in Mali, West Africa. With successful drilling programs and new discoveries made this year, we are in an excellent position to advance our premier FT project to development. We have a 43-101 compliant resource of approximately 600,000 ounces of gold, with a target to increase to over 1 million ounces. North Atlantic trades under the symbol NAC on the TSX Venture Exchange. Learn more about NAC. Go to our website at www.nac.com. 
American Bonanza Gold's project, located in Arizona, is scheduled for production in 2010. American Bonanza Gold announced the positive results of its recent feasibility study at its 100% owned Copperstone Gold Mine. The mine is estimated to produce an average of 45,000 ounces of gold annually. At the current spot gold price, this will result in an IRR of 120%. Join the gold bull market. Invest in American Bonanza Gold. Visit the website at AmericanBonanza.com for more exciting information. Don't miss this great opportunity. The high-risk but high-reward business of mineral exploration is key to discovery and development of America's next generation of mines. A leader in this search is Millrock Resources. Based in Anchorage, Millrock is revealing the astounding potential for gold deposits in the Alaska frontier. In Arizona, the target is giant, hidden porphyry copper deposits. Financing this search are joint venture partners Tech, Ballet, Inmet, Kinross, and Altius, major industry players. Together, the aim is discovering world-class gold and copper deposits to help secure America's productive future. Investors can share in the potential rewards. Millrock trades on the TSX Venture Exchange, symbol MRO. Revolution Resources Corp. is a publicly trading exploration company that trades under the symbol RV on the TSX Exchange. Led by an experienced management team with a track record for discoveries, Revolution has initiated drilling on the company's newly acquired Champion Hills Gold Project in North Carolina. Revolution is focused on making a world-class discovery in an established gold belt, and with over $5 million in the Treasury, Revolution is effectively positioned to do so. Please visit www.revolutionresourcescorp.com for further information. As regular listeners to this show know, I am very bullish on gold and especially gold mining stocks. One of my favorite gold mining companies is Metanor Resources, traded Toronto and the Pink Sheets. This is a new gold producer. It is using cash flows from its Barry Mine in Quebec to finance growth of that mine and to put the world-famous Quebec Bachelor Lake Mine back into production. This stock has been recommended by my newsletter because I do believe it holds extraordinary upside price potential with relatively low levels of risk. Visit Metanor's website at metanor.ca or subscribe to my newsletter for more information. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. 